Bienvenidos and welcome to Crónicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles. I'm your host Vanessa Bohm with Nina Serrano and Julieta Kuznir. Tonight we spend the hour listening to the voice and music of renowned Puerto Rican percussionist and educator from the Bay Area, John Santos. Nina Serrano had a chance to speak with him earlier this year at our KPFA studios. He shares with us an intimate look into his life and how music played an important role in shaping his childhood. He tells us how he developed into the great musician he is today and how he discovered his love for art and music education. And we'll end tonight's program with a calendar of upcoming events to check out and enjoy in the Bay Area. Así que no se mueven. is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. We have in the studio tonight John Santos. Many of you are already familiar with his music, his musicology, his lectures, his sharing with the community so many times at so many levels. Tonight, we're not going to hear about his next gig. We're going to hear about John, his development, who he is, how he became almost an institution in our community. Bienvenidos, John Santos. Thank you so much, Nina. It's always an honor and pleasure to be here with you. Such an inspiration for me for so many years. So how did you come to this community? Well, I'm born into the community. My parents were born here in San Francisco. I was born and raised in the Mission District, born on 22nd and Harrison, and raised up on Bernal Heights, and came into a musical family. And so just being fortunate, I think, to be exposed to the wonderful art scene and music scene here in San Francisco from the 60s. I was born in 1955, and so the decade of the 60s is the first decade that really hit me you know, hard with an awareness of music and growing up around it. I had professional musicians in my family on both sides of my family. My father's and mother's parents were professional musicians. And so that's what got the ball rolling. So were you a drummer from the very first? You know, apparently I was because even though I don't really have clear memories of it, my mom, she would take out the pots and pans and put them on the kitchen floor and I would entertain myself for hours while she cleaned or did whatever she needed to do. Officially, I started with the clarinet in the third grade. I played clarinet for about three years. That clarinet, it's started with my oldest brother, and he was there with that clarinet about one year. The next brother had it for a year, and then it came to me, and I had it for three years. And that's really all the official formation that I had musically. You know, unfortunately, it's one thing that I'm lacking of is real deep musical theory, because that's all the schooling that I really had was were those three years where I learned some basics about reading music that I stuck with, and or stuck with me, I should say. And and then after the playing three years of clarinet, I came back to the percussion, to the drums officially, and started playing congas about the age of 11 or 12 with my grandfather's band. And from that point on, it started as a hobby and became a profession. What was your grandfather's band? My grandfather was Julio Rivera from Santurce, Puerto Rico. He was my step-grandfather, actually, but he was married to my grandma, and uh, he was a great musician. He played requintos, a certain type of guitar that's very popular in Latin America. He also played the cuatro. He played bass, and he had a, he had his own band, and they would play at all the Puerto Rican events. They would play at uh, you know weddings and anniversaries and baptisms and funerals and in bars and in uh, halls and in my grandma's house all the time, so it seemed like... It was a constant soundtrack for my youth was the music of my grandfather. We grew up with that. And they played their repertoire. They were all Puerto Rican musicians, but they played a repertoire that was half Cuban because just that's the way it is with, the, with the, the, the music is so linked. They played a lot of sones and rumbas and huarachas, but they also played huaracha jibara and jibaro music, bombas and plenas, and it was a, quite a mixed repertoire. So it was a wonderful school for me. What happened when you branched out from your grandfather's band? Well, that happened 
largely because of the big commotion that Santana caused when he came out of Mission High School, because my older brothers and cousins were schoolmates of Carlos and knew him. And before he came out, we were hearing about him, and he was mixing electric guitar with Latin percussion, with congas and timbales. And we knew the congas and timbales very well, because my grandfather used those instruments in his band. And we loved the guitar. We were into Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles. And so, you know, as kids in the mid-60s, the electric guitar was a big thing. We used to know the air solos by heart of, of all the popular songs and solos. So when Santana mixed those two things, that was a big deal for us. It really legitimized in a special way the music of our grandparents and uh, really got into that. And I was in one of probably, you know, at least dozens, if not more, of garage bands that were playing Santana repertoire. When his first record came out, I think it was 68, a lot of groups came out just playing that repertoire that was, that was, was on that album. And we learned it backwards and forwards.
And then how did you move on? Well, then I started playing, you know, we used to play in the park a lot. and I Dolores play, Park? In Dolores Park, in Presida Park, in Marshall Banks Park in Daly City, in San Bruno Park, Crystal Springs Reservoir over that direction, a little bit at Aquatic Park and Golden Gate Park, although Dolores Park was the center because it was the, in, in the middle of the barrio and it was like the Latin scene. And also on Sproul Plaza in, in uh, Berkeley. And so there's these drum scenes and we used to play a lot of drums. And then we started playing with some salsa groups, you know, in the early 70s. And then in 1976, I, I got a call to audition for Santana of all things. And I joined the Santana band in 1976 along with my compadre Raul Rico. You know, Raul got an audition and they hired him to play congas. And the next day, because Raul and I played in a band together called La Banda, and uh, he came back the next day and said they hired him and they were looking for a timbalero and he arranged for an audition for me. And they hired me. Three weeks later, I was fired. And, and Why? Let's hear that story. Well, I was young. I was, you know, I was 21 years old and I was new, relatively new to the timbales. I loved the timbales and I was studying them from the very traditional standpoint of playing danzones and playing traditional timbal. And that's not what Carlos wanted. You know, the, the original timbalero who I came right after was Chepito Arreas. And Chepito created a style of timbales that's really like a rock timbal with big drumsticks. And he had drum set type of chops that I did not have. I still don't have those jobs. So I was playing with small sticks and trying to get refined sound and it's not what he wanted. Carlos put these big fat sticks in my hand, you know, the sticks Jupiter would use and said, no, I need this sound and I couldn't even hold those sticks. So it became obvious that I, I wasn't the right guy for the job and they let me go. My compadre Raul was there for almost 40 years. He was there for 38 years in that bed, in that chair and probably more than anyone else in the history of a conga drum, brought a conga drum in front of audiences all over the world for, you know, year after year after year because they were always on tour and making recordings. Recordings. So there you were. Were you depressed and sad that you, you know, had to leave that band? I, I wasn't because it was a it was a, like a fantasy. You know, it was like I still couldn't believe it. By the time when I got fired, I still didn't believe that I was even there at all. I, it was like a bubble. You know, the bubble got burst. But immediately when I came out of that experience, the group that Ro and I were in had disbanded because instead of hiring two more percussionists to learn the whole repertoire, it was a band of basically of mercenaries. They all played in a lot of different bands, and the band just disappeared into all the other bands. I didn't have a band to come back to. And I got an invitation to join this group called Tipica Cienfuegos. That was in 1976. And um, you know Tipica very well because Greg, your son, a couple years later joined that group also. I came into the group and to make a long story short, you know, the group had a lot of energy and I liked it and everything, but it was very disorganized. And I made a proposal to them. I said, you know, I'd like to propose that we study with this band because I have a great collection of music. I said, let's study this music and really learn how to play because they were into playing traditional Cuban music. And I really was way into that. And I, and I had a great repertoire of resource. And I offered to, uh, let's, you know, use my collection and just play, just rehearse and study and not worry about gigging, not, don't accept any gigs. And this, you know, for how long? I don't know, however long it takes, a year, whatever. And so half the group said, that, no, we're not going to do that. And, and half the group said, okay. And we did it. And I made tapes. I made, on cassettes, I made a list of about 700 songs of all types of Cuban and Puerto Rican music, traditional, folkloric, rumba, bata, bomba, plena, danzón. Mambo, everything, and gave it to everybody with a list. So it was, a, it was like a work, it was a study group. And we really went to school on that. And we studied, we rehearsed twice a week, and we did it for over a year, almost a year and a half before we ever took a gig. But when we took that gig, we, that band had, was unlike any other group uh, up to that time, it was really well rehearsed and disciplined. And I think we surprised a lot of people because we were very young, but playing traditional music pretty well for, for our age. And so that came out in 77 with that. And then uh, shortly after that, Greg joined the group also um, and was with the group for a while before he went to Nicaragua. And um, yeah, so that that group went till 1980. We, we you know played in the street a lot, played at the Mission Cultural Center, played at the 24th Street Fair and uh, in Dolores Park and a lot of community events. It was a wonderful learning experience for all of us. And when did you get to the point that you made your first recording? That didn't happen until 81 because in, in 1980, Sinfuegos broke up largely because I, I was directing the group and booking the group and trying to organize and we kind of hit a ceiling, I think. I couldn't get a recording contract. I was trying, but I had no really real contacts or resources. And also 
John Calloway, who was a big part of that group, was off to New York. And John was kind of, as young as he was, John was kind of a child prodigy. He was doing arrangements for us and playing trombone and flute and some percussion and a lot of stuff. And he was off to New York. And so with Sin Fuegos, the band kind of hit a, a ceiling, I, I felt, and I felt like I wanted to kind of step down. And nobody wanted to assume the leadership of the group, so the group broke up. But then another group soon was born out of that, which was Batachanga. And Batachanga came out of a gig that Jose Flores had a gig in Berkeley at a restaurant, and it under his name, pretty soon they branched off and made this group, Batachanga, and invited me to be part of the group. But I had an injury at that time. I had injured my hand, and I needed to not play for a, about a period of a year or so. So I had to decline. I wanted to be in a group, but I, I didn't. But then the next year in 81, they got a record contract. They got an offer by a local company called Sugarloaf Records, and they asked me to come in to produce the record. I came back, and then I joined the group for good in 81 to, to produce the record. I co-produced it, actually, with Michael Spiro. That record was a great experience. It was the first production for me, really, record production. And that album came out. was called Latinación, was the name of the record, on vinyl. It only came out on vinyl. And then that group went till about 85, and the same thing happened. You know, an interesting thing happened there because the group also was going to break up. We had a couple members of the group who were at the point where they were playing with a lot of other groups, and we didn't have that experience with Cienfuegos and with the early part of Batachanga. But now we had people who had other gigs, and, and sometimes I would get a gig and say, I got this date, and they say, I can't make it. I'm playing with another group. And that didn't sit well with me. So I, I got to the point after a few years, and also Anthony Blea was leaving the group. Anthony was in the group, and he was going to New York. And so I, I made the same proposal. I'm gonna, I said, I, I don't want to continue with this, and if anybody wanted to step up, nobody did. But I made the suggestion also that we document where we're at right now, because a couple years had gone by since we made the first recording, and I suggested, let's make a recording before we break up. And they said, you're crazy. Why would we do that? You know, I said, because a group sounds different. The group had come a long way, and we need to document it. And they said, no, 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 no. I said, okay, well, I'm going to do it. So whoever wants to do it, I'm going to give you a date, and boom. And of course, everybody showed up. Everybody came to play. And that record, I'm very proud of that record, because a lot of years went by, and then I, every time I hear it, it, it it surprises me because we were very young still, but the group showed a lot of discipline and had come a long way.
what would you say, what was the difference between being a musician, even if you were the lead musician of the group, making all the bookings and all the arrangements and all that, and being the music producer? What's the difference between those two roles? Well, you know, it's not cut in stone. It, it just depends on the situation. Sometimes as a leader of a group, you have a certain set of jobs in one group and a leader of another group may not have the same jobs. And the same with record production. Somebody has to take care of all the work that, get, that needs to get done. And so in my case, as my role with the group was to book the group, was to do the contracts, was to or, arrange the or rehearsals, to accept the checks and write checks for everybody and get 1099s at the end of the year and that whole tax thing. And so I had all of the administrative type of work to do and booking the group and organizing, making all the calls. But now in the record production, you have to conceive, you have to have a concept. You have to kind of plan it out and think of everything from title, a theme, what songs, the composers and the arrangements of the tunes, the copyright of tunes, if you're doing any copies. Uh, but we did a lot of original material. The liner notes, the artwork, the photography, the recording itself and the engineer, the mixing, the mastering, the record production and manufacturing. So it's a lot of things to organize once again. And I basically had to do the whole the whole thing. But after our first experience with Batachanga, which was a bad one, you know, uh, we, we did not have a good experience with the owner of the record label and we felt that we got burned. So for the next record, it was the first record on my label. I formed my own label, Machete Records, and the first record that I put out in was in 1984, the record called Mañana para los Niños by the Orquesta Batachanga. So that's been over 30 years now I've had that record label and just putting out my own music. You know, the purpose of it was so that I could put out my own music and not feel that I'm getting burned by, a, by another company. Now, of course, I have no resources to promote or to distribute, so that's been a, a big limitation. But at least I have put out about 20 productions over the years. The jobs overlap a lot in terms of administration and dealing with people, but it's a learning process and there's a lot to learn about the business and the business is constantly changing and evolving, so it's not easy to keep up with. And the technology is changing. For sure. And that's something that I respect a great deal, both sides of the business. There's that industry and business side, and then there's the musicianship part. I've tried my best to try to reach a balance with it. To be honest with you, I did it because I felt I had to do it as far as learning the business, but it was never my intention. And I would have been glad and still would be glad to not have to deal with the headache of all that business because it takes you out of what I really love, which is the, the creative part of writing and composing and practicing and rehearsing and experimenting music. I'd be a much better musician and composer today if I was not a decent businessman. <laughs> well, as someone who has observed you over these many years, my first memories were that you were doing traditional Cuban and Puerto Rican, and then you expanded kind of into the idea of Caribbean music and trying to be as traditional or inside the limits of the traditions. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, you began to change. Where was that? Well, I'm not exactly certain because for me, you know, having grown up with Caribbean music, the nature of Puerto Rican music, my family being of Puerto Rican descent, is that it's very mixed. There's a lot of straight kind of uh, Spanish-influenced music from this peasant farmer tradition of the people from the hills, the jibaros. But then there's also the Afro-Puerto Rican part, the bomba and the plena. And Cuban music is so strong, such a strong influence all over Latin America and all over the world. And so Puerto Rico is one of the first places that has gotten the influence from Cuba. And so I got exposed to Cuban music very early on. One thing that really turned me on in Cuban music was there was a gentleman, a Cuban gentleman who was an ex-boxer who fought three times for the lightweight championship of the world and he never won. He had a draw twice and he lost once but he was that level. He almost became the champion of the world in the lightweight division. His name was Orlando Sulueta and he moved in right across the street from us when I was very young, about 10 years old and when he found out that I was into playing conga drums, he came over one day with a vinyl record by Mongo Santa Maria who, who was a personal friend of his. It was a record that Mongo had given him. It's a record that Mongo recorded in San Francisco in 1958 and it's an amazing classic record it's like the bible it's really a record that really opened my eyes to afro-cuban traditional music and really sent me in that direction heavily and uh, it featured francisco aguabea who for many years later will become my padrino my godfather in the drum and i would end up learning a great deal with him and it had al mckibben and willie bobo and modesto duran carlos vidal pablo mozo some wonderful musicians and was all folklore it was all drumming and voices and it 
it was so beautiful and that really pulled me into that to that music and I started looking for recordings that featured drums and then that brought me right straight into the heart of Cuban music because the Cuban tradition is actually richer and more documented in terms of drumming than the Puerto Rican one so I ended up being attracted to the recordings of Patato and Chano Pozo Candido Mongo Julito Collazo Francisco Aguabella Armando Peraza and all these great Cuban drummers
I became aware of you as a young scholar outside of the academies and outside of the university. You began in community settings giving classes about Caribbean music or about Cuban music. Tell me about that. That happened by accident also because, you know, when my family members found out that I was into this music, they helped me out by giving me recordings. My grandparents, my uncles, my great uncles had wonderful collections of music and I started inheriting that material. And when they would travel to New York or Puerto Rico or Cuba or wherever they would go, they would they knew that I was into that. They would bring me uh, related materials, books, literature, vinyl records, 78s sometimes, rare records, rare material. And then I was also into going around uh, locally in the Mission District and buying them up wherever I could find them. So by the time I was in high school, you know, when I was halfway through high school, I already had quite a formidable collection of music that I had documented and I kind of made a little database, so to speak, by hand of everything that I had. And I was very meticulous about that. You know, I had, as a little boy, I I was very much into baseball and baseball cards and I had kept all the records by hand and I was kind of used to doing that accounting type of stuff by hand and I did that with this with the music so I had it very organized so I started getting asked to make presentations because I guess the word of my collection studying that and had some information spread and I started getting asked to make presentations so but by the time I was uh, even when I was in high school when I was still in high school I made a presentation at Mission High School I was going to high school at Galileo myself but I was in the 12th grade so that was in 19. 72 or 72 or 73 and I made a presentation at Mission High School in the same year I made a presentation at the Mission Branch Library and the thing is that that information was rare. I had a lot of the information in a collection but it's not the kind of thing you could go to school here, especially here. The information was rare because our, our Latino community here is not Caribbean based and this would be material that would be a little more accessible in the East Coast, like in New York in particular. But since we didn't, we have a very small Puerto Rican and Cuban Caribbean community, that information was not readily available. I ended up just kind of doing that by accident, and, and then it grew, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed uh, teaching and preparing for a presentation, and if people would ask me questions that I didn't have the answer to, I could go back into my resources and, and research it, and it really was something that also resonated with me, and it became right away a big part of what I do, because I love to research and go into this resource that I have and, and look for stuff, and that's really one of the things that gives me a lot of joy, always has, the whole time. What do you think would be a good song for us to highlight and share with our listeners? Well, the recordings I've made over the years, not ashamed of any of them, I have to say, because the, the folks you know that I've worked with have been wonderful musicians, and I've been very fortunate to attract uh, the friendship and collaboration with some great artists from Cuba, from New York, from Puerto Rico, who have come through town and then recorded with us. And so all the recordings, I, I really enjoy them all. I could look back on them. You know, that's the, that's the one, maybe the, perhaps the strongest thing about having produced them myself on my label. I had no limitations or restrictions put on me by an outside producer or a label that said, you can't do this, you can't do that. That's not commercial enough and all that. So I've done what I wanted to do. So you know, I could really say without exception, you could pick anything out for over the years, going back to 1981 all the way up to now. I would suggest perhaps if you ask me to suggest something, something more recent is from the Filosofia Caribeña Volume 2 record. There's a piece called Domingo Yaucano. Now, that's a piece that's uh, dedicated to my great-grandparents, Dominga and Domingo Perez Ramos, Borrero. They came from the southern part of Puerto Rico, they went to Hawaii, then they came to San Francisco. Because you said there was a change at a certain point, and, and I think that this maybe represents it very well, because it's based on some very traditional Afro-Puerto Rican forms, but it's very modern in terms of harmony and jazz and solos. Steve Turry, the great trombone player, who's originally from the Bay Area, lives in New York, and very famous, legendary trombonist, is a guest on here, and he's playing seashells, caracoles, as well as the trombone, and I think you'll enjoy that one. Mm-hmm. 
You're still teaching music. Could you tell us about your teaching today? Most definitely. You know, teaching, I say, is half of what I do. I teach a lot. I do these series. I do a yearly series, a lecture series at the Museum of the African Diaspora. I teach uh, every year for the last 25 years at the jazz camp in, during the summer and at the Afro-Cuban camp for the last 15 years up in Humboldt State University, which is, those are week-long camps that happen during the summer. I also teach at the Lafayette Summer Music Workshop, which is a jazz workshop for mainly middle school kids. And then I'm part of the faculty at the College of San Mateo, where I teach one day a week during the semester, an Afro-Latin percussion ensemble, and I teach at the California Jazz Conservatory in Berkeley, which is housed at the Jazz School. They were recently accredited two years ago. People come there, kids can come there now or any age to get a musical degree, and I teach there uh, different classes each semester, sometimes um, a Latin roots of jazz lecture type class, a Latin music ensemble, like a Latin jazz ensemble, and an Afro-Latin percussion ensemble as well. I've been going to Germany. I didn't go this year, but in the last 30 years, I've gone about 24, 25 times to Germany to teach. And you teach in English there? Yeah, in English. Everybody speaks English. It's not a problem. And it's been a great experience, too. Well, this is just tremendous. And now your own children, I've seen them perform. Tell us about their participation in music. You know, it's a wonderful cycle. I always think of, when I think of the kids, I always think of Petey Thomas. And Petey Thomas, you know, used to say that every child is born a poet. It, it resonates with me so much that the kids are just born with no obstacles. They don't have that limitations that we have as adults. And so when it comes to learning, if the kids are surrounded by art, the kids thrive and they pick it up so quickly. They're like sponges. And so my kids have been exposed to music, of course, and since they were, before they were out of their mom's tummy, they just, it resonates with them. They're, they have a good ear, they have a good rhythmic sense, they sing, they dance, they play, they love it. My son's playing some piano, my daughter's playing some drums, and they're dancing ballet and doing capoeira, and they're doing a ton of things, and they love it, and they thrive in all of it. It's not difficult if you don't have the obstacle, you know, in your mind and they're open to it. So it's it's a wonderful thing because it, it just teaches them about how to be in the world. It teaches them how to be around other people and be considerate and learn about respecting the elders and all the history and all the lessons that we learn through the music and through art. The kids are exposed to it early and they just soak it right up. So they understand already. They're only seven and nine and they really get it about how the art is first and foremost in learning and learning anything. So how do you see your own future in music at this point? You know, it's funny because I've been asked that question a lot over the years and it's always the same answer is that I just hope to be able to continue to do what I've been doing because it's an incredible learning experience. I've been teaching all these years now for you know since since 72 1972 and 
you know, I, I'm firmly a believer and, and I just know that the person who learns the most in a teaching situation is the teacher. You learn how, how to teach and you learn how to express something and you learn what works and what doesn't work. And when you're presented with, which we constantly are, when you're presented with problems or complications or questions that are hard to answer, you go back and you find out how to deal with it and you have to research. And there's no end to that. It's a beautiful thing to be able to teach around music and, and the traditional music holds so much history and passion and, and respect and all of the real family values that we cherish are all passed down through the arts. For me, I feel fortunate. I feel like an eternal student. I feel it keeps me young. It keeps me searching. And I love the idea of being a student. I have a question in my mind that comes up or that somebody poses to me and go find the answer. You know, And I have a lot of resources. And if my resources don't make it, I know people. I could call people. I could find out. And I, I just enjoy it. I'm a person who likes to open up books and look and find it you know, in my hand and feel it. And, you know, this has allowed me to do that and to make a living, you know, doing it. And so I'm very grateful for that. And I hope just to be able to continue doing that, continue growing in the tradition and sharing this wonderful resource. Well, thank you so much, John Santos. We look forward to playing your music. We look forward to hearing the new music. And we'd love to have you come back and talk to us further about music. Thank you so much, Nina. Anytime. Well, it's been a pleasure. Un gran placer. Placer mío. Unequal the way we represent Puerto Rico Spread our silo wherever we go We don't need no reason why Better believe when we arrive You'll see our flag fly We identify with the five stripes Light blue, red, and white Like we guided by that star That shines solo and bright We hang it high in a plain sight Just like a FYI You'll probably hear somebody Singing after midnight Don't be surprised We come alive under the moonlight We live long, we laugh strong Because we love life Bonga, bongo, barriguido We go till the sunrise No need reply to no evite If you feel like, come on by True Boricua, baby, don't leave room for the ifs or the maybes And speak the truth is how I be, so when I will let them raise me And though we've been gone for so long, far from home, we so strong My people, they never cease to amaze me
change and stay the same and use all of our family names and our languages scramble between Creole, Spanglish, and slang they haven't invented yet. We be using words, Boricua, and they dialect. We say, Fana for Patnam, Papa means you my peoples. If we use mommy, probably means we love, respect you, or need you. If we say chévere or vaya, then something's por la maceta. Mientras, you might hear coño cuando alguien molesta. Even a blonde, blue-eyed Boricuas we call negro or negra. All of my people so frito, todo tenemos una mezcla. Pa' que sepa, that's why we blend in donde quiera. Borincano suben la mano, everybody shout, wepa. And we don't know what that means, it's just what Borincano scream. Oakland Island of Queens, nah. We not Puerto Rican, we Boricua. Our original name before the Niña Pinta y Santa Maria. Que va? the Cronicas de la Raza calendar of community events for the Latino community. On this Thursday, November 5th, our very own Nina Serrano will read her latest poems along with the noted Greek, Hellenic scholar, and Greek poet, Thanasis Mascaleris. The reading begins at 6.30 and ends at 7.30. It will be held at the Reader's Cafe in Fort Mason in San Francisco. Everyone is invited. The poets will be introduced by San Francisco Poet Laureate Emeritus, Jack Hirschman of Friends of the San Francisco Public Library. On Saturday, November 7th, from 1 to 6 p.m., there will be a Floricanto Festival para nuestros niños. It will be held at Acción Latino at 2598 24th Street, hosted by prize-winning children's author Jorge Algueta. Also on Saturday, the Revolutionary Poets Brigade will be hosting a book release poetry reading for their new book, Overthrowing Capitalism 2015, Beyond Endless Wars, Racist Police, and Sexist Elites, from 2 to 8.30 at the Unitarian Universalist Church in San Francisco on the corner of Go and Gary. Nina Serrano will be reading the afternoon, along with many other fine poets. Keep on celebrating life and Dia de los Muertos at the Mission Cultural Center, SoMart, and the Oakland Museum as they still have their fabulous exhibits on display. Also check out Sacred Cartographies, the art of Amalia Mesa Baines at Galeria de la Raza. Her show will be up until December 20th and should not be missed. The 12th annual Mole Tasting Contest is on November 18th at 7 p.m. and will be at the Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts. On Saturday, November 28th, from 9 to 11, will be the closing reception for Altar para mi Muerte, Altar of My Passing. The free event will include the songs of Macleet Hedero and poetry by the curator, Adrian Arias. This will take place in Oakland at Studio Grand at 3234 by the Grand Lake Theater. If you'd like us to include your event in our calendar, you can always email us at lajasachronicles at kpfa.org. This has been Cronicas de la Raza's calendar of upcoming cultural events in the Latino community.
You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA 94.1 FM, community-powered radio. If you like tonight's program and would like to hear it again or share it with others, you can find and listen to the show on soundcloud.com. Just search for La Raza Chronicles. Make sure to like us on Facebook to receive regular updates of news, arts, and culture in the Latino community. Hasta la próxima. Stay tuned next Tuesday at 7 p.m. for more of La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Thank you.